I prescribe pharmaceutical grade pills, known dose, known purity, made in a pharmaceutical factory that people can then crush and inject so that they are no longer injecting the tainted, the toxic fentanyl street supply. And so safe supply fills that unique gap in, in people who have not been able to be successful in traditional addiction medicine uh, therapies like methadone and, and buprenorphine. That's Dr. Andrea Sereda. She's the lead physician at the London, Ontario Intercommunity Health Centre's Health Outreach Program, and she's the founding physician for Safer Opioid Supply, which provides pharmaceutical-grade opioids to people dependent on unregulated street fentanyl. She's our guest on this episode of Minobe Matsuin, talking about addiction and safer supply. I'm Carol Hopkins, CEO of Thunderbird Partnership Foundation, an organization that supports First Nations across Canada in mental wellness. Minobimatsuin means living the good life in the language of Anishinaabe. And Thunderbird chose that as a name for the podcast because it captures what we all hope for, for ourselves and those that we care about. This podcast aims to seek and share insight about addictions and mental health issues that many of First Nations families and communities are dealing with. We're going to be fearless and have thoughtful and informative conversations with some of the leading voices in Indigenous wellness. Our aim is the same as Thunderbirds, to offer support in addressing substance use and addictions issues through a holistic approach to healing and wellness. One that is grounded in culture, Indigenous ways of knowing, with a connection to community and above all else, with kindness and compassion. And today we're thrilled to have Dr. Andrea Sereda joining us uh, from London, Ontario, Dr. Sarita works at the London Intercommunity Health Center's outreach program focusing on care for people who use drugs. People deprived of housing, women, and the survival sex trade, as well as medical street outreach and care in non-traditional settings such as shelters and jails. Her program, Safer Opioid Supply, or SOS is a Health Canada recognized and funded substance use and addiction program. It's considered a pillar of the federal government's approach to the overdose crisis. Good morning, Andrea, and welcome to Minibimatsuin. Thank you so much for having me today, Carol. So, Andrea, to get started, um, can you just help our audience understand what is safer supply and how is it different than? other treatments that we we know of, such as methadone and buprenorphine, naloxone? That's a great question. Um, and I think the reality is there's SOS. Um, I prescribe pharmaceutical grade pills, um, known dose, known purity, made in a pharmaceutical factory that people can then crush uh, and inject um, so that they are no longer injecting the tainted, the toxic fentanyl street supply. And so when we're talking about the similarities, again, all of them are harm reduction, um, you know, interventions, all reduce uh, mortality, all reduce fatal overdoses. A difference with safer opioid supply is it acknowledges that people who use drugs 
often do need um, to have injectable short-acting options that can meet their withdrawal needs and their craving needs. And so Safe Supply, you know, fills um, that unique gap in, in people who have not been able to be successful in traditional addiction medicine uh, therapies like methadone and, and buprenorphine. I also think Safer Opioid Supply the really important distinction for your listeners is that Safer Opioid Supply was developed um, with the input and the expert knowledge of people who use drugs. And so our protocols, our policies, our programs, the way we interact with our communities is all done in consultation with the communities that are affected. And so we've learned a lot um, from the community of people who use drugs. We've learned about how in some methadone models, for example, um, people can feel quite uh, coerced. They can feel in a punitive model. They can feel that they're often punished. They can feel that their needs are not centered in in, in some of those um, instances. Whereas safer opioid supply, we do our absolute best to center the person um, in their treatment decisions the person uh, in the medication that we're selecting and that person's goals. So really to sum it up, Safe Supply really seeks to to center what the person defines as recovery and what the person uh, defines themselves as wellness. Wow, that's an excellent uh, explanation, Andrea. And there's a couple of things that you said that I just want to clarify. One, you said that when methadone or buprenorphine don't work, and uh, mm-hmm. and then a safer supply, a different medication um, could be very beneficial, helpful uh, to people who use drugs. What do you mean by when it doesn't work? And I think I'll use an example first as well. So if we think about cancer therapy, we have our first line therapies, our second, our third line therapies that are the most well-established in the medical literature. And then we have some things that we call rescue therapies within within cancer therapy. And these are um, treatment interventions that have a lot of promising data behind them that have good evidence for people who the first, second, and third line has not worked for. Um, And when we use, when people when the real choice is between doing something differently and somebody dying. And I think when we started Safe Supply, that's how we thought about it. More than 80% of our patients have tried, for example, methadone uh, intervention at really good doses, and most of them have tried it multiple times. Um, And for whatever reason, whether it's the methadone molecule, the way that they interact with their methadone clinicians, maybe some barriers to access in methadone, for whatever reason, it has not worked for them. And they've returned to that deadly toxic fentanyl street supply. And so when we started the program, we really did think of ourselves as that rescue therapy, right? Where we're offering an intervention of people at high risk of death for whom our traditional interventions have not worked. Over the past eight years, as we've built Safer Supply, um, we no longer think of it as a rescue therapy. We now think of it as another tool in the toolbox, another tool on the spectrum of interventions that we can offer people who use drugs. And so, again, if we're thinking about something like diabetes, we have multiple dozens of diabetes medications. Some of them work better for other people. Some combinations work better for certain individuals. Um, But all of the medications are known to help people with their diabetes. And so we now think of that spectrum the same way. So we have methadone, buprenorphine, abstinence-based recovery, 12-step groups, and safe supply all on this spectrum of possible interventions that could help the human 
human. And so we need to look at our individual human patient, um, look at those options and decide what works best for them. And and for a, a good proportion of people, safe supply is what is working best for them right now. When you're talking about this particular intervention, is there um, a certain population that you could say it works better for or less uh, is less effective? And just when you're thinking about that, I, I'm I'm thinking about remote and isolated communities and the access, the availability and access to prescribers, someone who can actually prescribe safer supply. Um, we just, you know, I guess in recent years um, have been able to, you know, have nurse practitioners uh, prescribe. And so widening the pool of uh, facilitators to create access to uh, the medicine that people who use drugs um, need to survive every day. So can you help me understand, you know, how, how do we get prescribers in remote and isolated communities? Is it beneficial outside of an urban environment? And just talk about the populations that you've worked with. Yeah, and I and I think you touched on um, a bunch of really important issues in your question there. If I start early in the question around who does safe supply work the best for, that's actually a hard question. Um, it's a hard question because the amount of prescribers compared to the number of people who could benefit from safe supply is so small. So until now, safe, not even until now, now as well, safe supply prescribers have concentrated on people who are at the highest risk of death from that fentanyl street supply. So that means people with frequent overdoses, uh, people who are often in the hospital for infection related, uh, sorry, injection related infections, people who have chronic medical conditions like HIV that are unmanaged because of their engagement with with the toxic street supply. And so because our capacity is so limited, we've really hired to work hard to, to really target those folks who are at high, highest risk of death. And, and we have really great data that says the good things that happen for those folks when we engage them with safe supply. Now, do we know other folks who are maybe more recreational opioid users or who don't have those really significant health consequences that I've mentioned? Would safe supply work equally for them? I believe it would, but because we're limited by our capacity, we haven't even, we have not actually been able to address that question. And when we're thinking about um, interventions uh, for remote communities, First Nations communities um, that already have a deficit of, of healthcare workers in those communities, um, I think you, again, touch on a really valid point of how do we get prescribers there, right? And in an ideal world, um, you know, I described how safe supply really centers the patient and their community and their choices at the center of safe supply prescribing. And so in an ideal world, I, I would love to see First Nation community members prescribing safe supply within their own communities, because I think it's critically important to understand who you're prescribing to, the challenges that they face, and how safe supply might interact with their own local community. I think that's really, really important. Um, in the absence of, of First Nations uh, physicians being available to do that kind of work, we, we have talked about other options like virtual care for remote communities, smaller remote communities, and that's something that we're thinking about, but we haven't uh, completely uh, finished protocols for. 
Okay, so for First Nations communities um, and and even just rural Canada, First Nations people leave their communities for employment, education, healthcare, and when they can't get access to uh, the medicine they need um, to help them manage their use of street drugs, of withdrawal from from drugs. Um, and have intention to continue using drugs, um, but they want to use in a safe way. And they can't get access to resources in their own community. They're going to go to the city for that. So um, oftentimes when First Nations leave their communities, go to the city, they find um, their best friend is is not actually healthy for the community. Maybe they're involved in, in gangs or... Um, other kinds of activities that then come back to the community with those First Nations people. Um, And so people who use drugs and are using uh, by injection or maybe using fentanyl, um, maybe using other substances as well. And, so there's two questions and I'm thinking in my question to you is the poly substance use and how to safer supply um, benefit somebody who is using uh, fentanyl or other uh, types of opioids and maybe has had a number of overdose incidents, maybe has, you know, that traffic back and forth from urban environments back to the community and now is impacting community. Um and so that's that's one question is how does safer supply play a role in in that kind of a scenario? But then also we know that um, people are going to use whatever they can find to um, help them live life. They they don't have a desire to die. They want to survive. And so they're using some type of opioid, maybe a methamphetamine or a benzodiazepine. Um, or even xylazine, how does safer supply fit in that spectrum of the person who is using multiple types of drugs to survive every day? Thank you for that. I think the questions are actually even more related than than maybe you intended when you were asking them, because I what I'm hearing you ask is about polysubstance use and then the impact of, of safer opioid prescribing on the polysubstance use. I can say... Um, that the majority of people in the London Intercommunity Health uh, Safe Supply Program are polysubstance users. So most folks will use um, opioids, predominantly fentanyl, predominantly uh, toxic street fentanyl, as well as methamphetamine. Um, And methamphetamine can really be considered as a survival drug. Um, It's very cheap. It's often what people turn to um, when they can't afford anything else. Um, People will often, you know, purposely or accidentally combine their methamphetamine with their fentanyl. And there's another, you know, there's a whole host of reasons why people would choose to do that. Um, But when we see people who who are using multiple drugs, 
come on to a safer opioid supply, we actually see the use of their other drugs decrease. So people, you know, looking at our data, we see their fentanyl use declines across the board, but we also see their crystal meth use declines across the board. And we do have many people within the program who have become abstinent from crystal meth by receiving an opioid prescription. And I think this is very counterintuitive, but it leans into some of what you're saying of people will use what they can find. And so if their opioid needs are, are, you know, met with a safer opioid supply, then they don't need to go and find other drugs to, um, you know, cause, you know, cognitive disconnection that they're seeking or, or maybe pain control or other things. And so although they're different molecules or different substances, one's a stimulant, one's an opioid, we do see a reduction across the board. Um, and then leaning into into your other questions about which I think um, you know leans into what do we do if those drugs are are brought back to smaller communities? I think again, what we can say is we know people do better, and so I, especially in smaller communities, I think we have to be very judicious and very careful that we're not destabilizing those communities in any way. And so there's factors we control and factors Mm -hmm. we can't control. People have a freedom of movement, which they should have. And so do we want folks coming back to those smaller First Nations communities using a multitude of different kinds of street drugs? Um, Or do we want them returning to the communities with a prescribed medication um, that makes them healthier, both physically and mentally, that reduces their other drug use? Sitting in my own chair, I would say I, I think it would be healthier for the whole community to have people who are even partly stabilized return to their community. But it's not, it certainly is not an easy question to predict or, or answer. I remember when um, First Nations people uh, started to talk about the impact of what they referred to at the time as prescription drugs um, as the main concern to the community. And there were prescribers of methadone and people were hitchhiking back and forth from the community to uh, their source of methadone. And, and there was no communication between uh, the prescriber of methadone and the community. And so there was a huge impact on community who didn't understand methadone, didn't understand who in their community was accessing methadone. People were living under um, the shame and stigma of their drug use and a community's expectation that if you're using drugs or alcohol, the only answer is abstinence. And so there was no room for thinking about medication to assist the individual and how that medication could actually impact um, greater safety in the whole community. And so Mm -hmm. when you're talking about you know, do you want the um, unregulated, unknown, uh, toxic drug supply in your community? Or do you want a clean, uh, known uh, potency and dose of uh, pharmaceutical grade drugs that people are using? Um, I think it it challenges us to think about uh, our perceptions on what creates health and wellness. And so when a physician or a a nurse practitioner is engaged in supporting wellness of individuals who use drugs in a First Nations community, there 
the best models that we've observed uh, making a difference for community wellness are those prescribers who can engage in conversations with other healthcare workers, can engage in conversations with chief and counsel, give them advice around policies to support this, um, or can engage in conversations with local health authorities to ensure adequate resourcing for First Nations to be able to support access to uh, medication for people who use drugs. Now, that's a long-winded explanation and setup to um, thinking about safer supply in a rural and remote environment uh, through virtual services and, and creating that relationship that is really focused on community development. Um, and you were talking about there's possibilities and there's you know, we need to set up protocols to make sure safety in community. That was one of the concerns around methadone. Community doesn't know anything about methadone. Um, There's potential for accidents. And um, so if we we go forward with safe supply in rural and remote environments, and we're coming off of the first thing people are going to remember is the, uh, the worry and the concern over um, methadone in the community and, you know, potentially children getting access. Um, and now we're talking about administering a medication with needles. Needles are also very scary, um, uh, you know, for drug use in community. And so can you help, help me understand uh, what are some of those protocols or what are some of the factors that need to be considered to ensure uh, greater safety in, in community besides, you know, the unknown toxic supply and a clean pharmaceutical grade of medication. Can you help us I explore think, some um, of those environmental factors? Mm-hmm. And I think we, I can certainly speak to our experience in, in London. Um, no human exists outside of community. Every, every human is part of a current community, a community they wish to return to, a community that they wish to gain access to. Um, and to really support that wellness, we have to engage that community as much as the person that we're treating as our patient. Um, and so in London, um, we have about 300 folks um, who use drugs on our program in London. Um, And I would say we do as much work connecting those patients back to community, back to other providers, doing education with those other providers, seeking to be within that community of people who use drugs to understand issues through their eyes and the eyes of their loved ones so that we can optimize the way that we are doing safe supply in the safest way possible. And I think, speaking of of First Nations uh, communities, I think I think they're very correct um, to have some hesitancy and want to learn more before accepting safer supply into their community. Um, the nature of remote communities has always been a lack of health care, a lack of understanding of, you know, constant cycling of different healthcare practitioners. That doesn't set up healthcare to be good no matter what disease model that you're looking at, whether it's diabetes, cancer, hypertension, none of that actually supports wellness in, in any human condition, uh, let alone substance use. And so when I talk about virtual care, it's 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 a delicate thing because could I go on a video chat and prescribe to a hundred people in a remote community? Yeah, 
I could. But seeing them on a screen is not even close to comparable to having that person in the room across from me with their mother or their brother or their child and, and understanding the entirety of, of the circumstance that that human finds themselves in. So how do we balance, how do we balance knowing the community with also knowing that there just simply are not enough doctors and nurse practitioners to go around that we can embed somebody in every single community. I think we need to look at partnerships of, of healthcare teams who are part of the First Nations or remote communities, um, partnered with experts in safe supply prescription and really building that team and, and, and seeking strength in that team and that collaboration before we actually seek to prescribe. Because the teams, we need to work well together. We need to talk to each other. We need to have, you know, bilateral communication about what's working and what's not working. And I think that sets up education and safety in communities before we go on to the actual prescribing. Thank you, Andrea. That's a really great um, conversation to be having around um, attaching not only the medication, uh, but the provider to make sure that there's an understanding about about the environment, about the community, about the people that live in the community. And so it's um, what people often refer to as maybe a community development model, or it's a holistic model, where you said, um, you know, talking to an individual that is seeking the medication, but they might have a family member with them. We don't often think about primary health care involving the whole family in an individual's uh, treatment plan or medication um, and the prescribing of that medication. But in this environment, it's necessary to think about the whole community, about the family, or about who. Uh, people who use drugs are inviting into their uh, to their journey in life, and uh, they can become part of the conversation. Yeah, so virtual care doesn't um, necessarily um, exclude the access to safer supply. It's still possible, but. In virtual care, we would want to make sure that, again, there there is privacy if that's what's needed, that there's access to um, digital means, um, internet connection, those kinds of things to support someone. Remember back in the day when individuals um, were accessing uh, medication to assist them with their with the withdrawals or with just living every day without their drug of choice, and they were required um, to go for counseling. They and if they didn't want to um, access counseling, then they didn't access the service. And earlier, you were talking about punitive measures um, or coercive measures that don't work to support people in their wellness um, and when they're seeking uh, support to live every single day. And and essentially that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the medical support that people need to survive, to live, um, to continue to breathe um, every day. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, that coercion, that punitive um, side of um, this whole scenario and the scenario being supporting people who use drugs and their right to live. And I like how you actually ended that question around the right to live. Um, 
I know how well it works when somebody tries to make me do something, <laughs> let alone being forced into counseling or, or forced into other, other things surrounding a medication that I'm seeking. And so certainly in London, we, we present people with all of the options available to them. That's counseling, that's outreach, that's case management, that's housing support. And, and people can select what works for them in the moment. And just because that select that works for them in that particular moment doesn't mean that they can't change in the next moment. And, and when I talked about respecting people's own decisions and their own healthcare and their life choices, that's what we try to do. We try to respect what people feel ready for. Um, because often, you, you know, the, the physical dependence and therefore the withdrawal that, that comes with a street fentanyl use is profound. And especially in the early days of, of someone receiving safe supply and early days can represent months to the first year. What people are focused on is feeling physically better, not being in withdrawal, not being nauseous, not, you know, having bowel cramps and goose flesh and, and just feeling physically awful. That's what people are, are by and large trying to achieve and, and forcing someone to sit and talk about their feelings about how their withdrawal feels is is often counterproductive, um, both in the forcing them to do it and, and also in their readiness. Um, and I think, you know, most of us say if, if we're not ready to do something, it's, it's not going to be effective. And so, again, we, we allow people to make those own cho their own choices. I think a good example is also how uh, we manage uh, urine tests. And so almost all of our patients receive a urine test at almost all of their visits. Um, and patients are aware of this. And part of that urine test is, is we do want to monitor and make sure that they're taking the medications that are prescribed to them. But it's also a community empowerment tool. So in, in, in some methadone models, um, people need to, you know, provide their sample on camera or a witness sample, um, or maybe are cut off from, from methadone or other medications if they have non-prescribed drugs in their sample. And then that's kind of the old way of doing methadone. And methadone is certainly working to, to improve those parameters. But in safe supply, again, People give a urine sample at almost every visit. And what we do is we look at all the different street drugs that might appear in that urine. And the week later, we take everybody's results, you know, 100, 200, 300 results, and we pool them together. And we can let the entire community of people on our program know what was in the drug supply the week before. And, and we can follow trends and we can see new drugs that are emerging. And people by and large, feel very empowered by that. Instead of their urine sample being a, a tool to punish them with, their urine sample now becomes uh, something that they're, you know, contributing to the safety of their own community. And so, you know, the action of, of giving a urine sample remains the same, but how we use it and how we engage people in that is is very different. Um, and, and that's how Safe Supply seeks to, to change the narrative around it. That is creating safety by educating the population around the toxicity of the drugs that they are using if they're using uh, street drugs. Great example. Yeah, I don't, I don't want our listeners to perceive the conversation as methadone is bad, safer supply is good. Uh, this is not a conversation about um, about judging uh, methadone or uh, buprenorphine, but it is a conversation that is focusing on where we've been and where are we at now. For First Nations people, oftentimes that when there is no understanding about medication to assist pe people with living life or maintaining the right to live um, 
then we reference what is familiar to us. And First Nations people have a lot of pride in the way that their communities as a whole have addressed alcohol use. Now, alcohol is still the number one issue of substance in First Nations communities, um, un- not unlike uh, the rest of uh, the Canadian population, but actually we have a lower rate of alcohol use than the rest of the Canadian population. But that's our baseline for understanding how do we address addictions and uh, or problem- problematic substance use. And for people who and communities who feel as feel that sense of uh, pride in the community um, addressing the issues of problematic alcohol use. Often they talk about, I made a decision one day, you know, somebody in my family or my friends kept, you know, pressuring me, you, you need to stop that. These are the things that are going to happen to you if you don't stop that. Um, all of the losses, those kinds of things. And so you know, that story always leads to a point. And so I decided one day, I decided one day and it wasn't easy, but I made a decision and, and that began a different, um, a different path for me in my life. And oftentimes it was the expectation you're going to deal with your unresolved issues. Go take care of your unresolved issues. If you just get counseling, you can, you know, make better decisions in your life. And while that might be true, that emotional um, state of our being is not the first line of intervention when we're talking about people who are using fentanyl, uh, methamphetamines, or benzodiazepines to survive every day. Um, And what you talked about is the physical need. So I'm just pointing this out for our listeners that what we know and what we feel a lot of pride in our accomplishments when it comes to alcohol use is not the same strategy that will work for people who are using drugs such as fentanyl. It has to be that physical side of life first. Can you talk a little bit more about that physical well-being that we're, that you said people are trying to achieve? Absolutely. And um, just a comment, and then I'll answer the question. I I completely agree with you about methadone not being bad. So I apologize if some of my my answers may have led some of your listeners to to think we think that. Um, Methadone is an incredibly valuable tool that keeps many, many people well. And I use methadone in my own practice, often in combination with safe supply. So methadone is incredibly positive for the people it works for. And I think when I'm talking about, you know, challenges within methadone. Those are historical challenges um, that have been, you know, across the board in medicine. Uh, I think medicine generally doesn't have a great track record of, 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 you know, treating people as autonomous humans who can make their own best choices in their life. Um, and within substance use, I think, I think methadone has really had that challenge in, in decades past and methadone providers are certainly seeking to improve that for, for people who are using methadone and really center the human as well. So I just want to state that I do agree. Um, and then leaning into your, your question around physical well-being, um, we find ourselves in in a pretty unprecedented, and I hate that word because I hear it so much in the media, but we are in an unprecedented time with fentanyl in that, in that 
there is a risk of death of using fentanyl. There is also a risk of death in withdrawal from fentanyl. And there is a risk of death in abstinence of fentanyl. And, and it's pretty darn unique to, to the trends in fentanyl that we're seeing now because the, the level of opioid requirement uh, for people who use fentanyl is profound in, in the range of 2,000 to 9,000 milligrams of morphine equivalents per day. Um, and I think we've talked about that, Carol, that works out to somewhere on the order of 150 to 650 uh, equivalents of Percocet per day. It's, it's, it's enormous. And so if somebody, you know, withdraws from that very quickly, they can have significant health issues, especially because benzodiazepines are now mixed in the fentanyl. But also, when people become absent of fentanyl with no medication support, any slip, any backward slip, any relapse, again, I hate that word, but I'm going to use it anyways, can result in death because we take people from a very high tolerance or used to using these large amounts, we take them down to a tolerance of zero with abstinence. And then if they go back to even a little bit of use of fentanyl, their their risk of overdose is very, very increased. And we see this all the time. And, you know, people with forced absence coming out of jail, we see so many overdoses in the 12 to 24 hours after people come out of jail, um, or out of hospital during forced abstinence. And so this is this is part of what is uniquely different, in that we need to support people with a prescribed mo sorry we need to support most people with a, with a prescribed opioid molecule of some kind whether that's methadone buprenorphine or safe supply because those those prescribed opioids fill the receptors on a person's brain so if they do go backwards and they do slip into fentanyl use again they're much more protected because they have that opioid tolerance from their prescribed medications and, and the fentanyl is, is potentially less deadly. So again, it's, it's really critically important that, that we address that risk of death before moving on to, you know, the counseling and other things that we're talking about. I also think you said something around, you know, counseling encourages people to make better choices. Um, and I push back against that as well, because I hear that in our, in our community in London. Um, but choices are, are dictated more by the environment that people find themselves in than the human being making, making those choices. I think when you only have bad choices in front of you and you pick the least bad choice, that, that's not a reflection on your ability to make choices, right? I think that's a reflection of people's resilience and doing best in circumstances they find themselves. And so if we want people to make better choices, then we need to give them better options. Excellent. If you only have a concrete bed and have no choice about shelter over that concrete bed, which might be the sidewalk or the street someplace, when you don't have access to food every single day, when you no longer have relationships. And for First Nations people, relationships are so critically important. I mean, it is for all human beings, but we have, we have such rich, incredible knowledge in our teachings about the importance and significance of relationships. And so relationships, if you no longer have relationships with human beings that value your life, that see you as a person with purpose, see you as a person whose life has meaning, you have no choices to make in terms of, you know, how to live life better. 
you have no choices about the decisions in that moment. You can say, well, I, I want, I want a better life. And, um, and, you know, you can have that thought about and dream about what a better life would be. But what choices do you have about getting there when you're suffering and pain and you're cold and you're hungry and you believe that nobody cares? You feel what our survey says of First Nations people who use opioids and methamphetamine. It says, I feel hopeless and I feel helpless to change my life. And so when we attend to the physical needs and suffering of individuals that through safer supply or methadone or buprenorphine, then essentially what we're saying is your life matters. Your life matters and I want to help you live life. I I completely agree. Um, And I think you told your listeners in in the introduction that I I care primarily for people who are housing deprived, sleeping rough, sleeping in encampments. Um, And what I often try and remind community members, you're saying they should just stop. If they would just stop using fentanyl, everything in their life would get better. But because of our, our national housing crisis, many of my patients have been outside for two, three, four years, right? Canadian, you know, Ontario sweltering summers and freezing winters and soggy springs and everything in between. And I, w- I would like people to imagine what their body would feel like sleeping on the ground for two, three, four years through all four seasons um, and how their body would physically hurt. And, and if you have a pain medication available to you called fentanyl, I don't think we can, we can really have much to say when people choose to treat their physical pain when they have no other options, as we discussed. And, you know, all along history, heroin, an opioid, has been described as a warm hug. It makes people feel connected. Mm-hmm. It attaches to positive emotional receptors in our brain. It feels emotionally good, especially in the beginning. And and for people, again, who have been sleeping outside for two, three, four years, um, with the community stepping over them, tearing down their tents, cutting their tents, calling them junkies in every other manner of word, you know, finding... A street drug, even a deadly one like fentanyl, that can make your brain forget about that social disconnection and, you know, alienation from your community. Again, I don't think we have a leg to stand on to fault people for trying to feel better in that way. And we can even extend that to drugs Mm -hmm. like crystal meth. If I have patients, you know, sleeping outside who only can find enough food to eat every two or three days um, and crystal meth makes you forget that you're hungry. So if there's not enough food to be found for two and three days, you can use crystal meth and it doesn't impact you in the same way. Or for women sleeping outside, right. there there's a high risk of sexual assault for many women. Um, whereas if you take crystal meth, you can be awake for two or three days so that people can't sneak up and, and assault you. And so we forget about these benefits that those of us who, you know, don't use drugs, who, who are housed, who have enough to provide, you know, our bodies and our families' bodies, we forget that there are actually positive and maybe relatively positive reasons why people would choose to use those drugs. And, and like I said before, unless we give people other options to address those basic needs, we should not be criticizing the choices that we leave them with. Yeah, I agree with you, Andrea. I don't think that we as human beings have the right to say, 
you know, some of you can access healthcare and you can access medication. And if I morally judge you as unfit human beings, then you do not have access to healthcare. You do not have access to medication that will ensure that you have, you can maintain your right to live life. Andrea, is there anything else that uh, you would like to share with our listeners that maybe I haven't asked you about or we haven't talked about? I would, I would encourage anyone who is interested in learning more about Safer Opioid Supply to visit the website of the National Safer Supply Community of Practice. And the Community of Practice is a Canada-wide uh, group, and certainly prescribers and other healthcare professionals can, you know, find lots of resources there. But for other people uh, of your listeners in your community, there are really great webinars and evidence briefs and really accessible health information that can explain um, the fentanyl crisis that we're in, that can explain the impacts of safer opioid supply. So if you would like to uh, learn more, I would really encourage you to, to visit the National Safer Supply Community of Practice website. An excellent resource. Thank you so much for all that you have shared with us in this brief conversation today. I'm sure that you and I could discuss any one of these factors in greater depth and spend all day talking about things. But uh, thank you for sharing that resource. Thank you for sharing your time today. And thank you uh, for, for your good work in supporting people who use drugs to maintain their right to live. I'm just so thankful that uh, there's a network of, of folks across Canada who are helping uh, First Nations people to live life. Thank you so much for inviting me today. Oh, thank you for joining us. <laughs> really appreciate it. And thank all of you for listening to this episode of Minobimatsuwin. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please rate and review us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It helps people to find these interviews. And please subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. For more information on the work of Thunderbird Partnership Foundation, please visit the website at thunderbirdpf.org. And be sure to follow us on social media. You can find us by searching for at thunderbirdpf. Miigwech. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, I'm Carol Hopkins.